if someone offers you something, whether it's a, a, like a hundred dollar job or a fifty thousand dollar production, um, if you commit to it, you go into it a hundred percent. You give it everything you can because often it's those little hundred dollar or freebie jobs that you do that you've agreed to because you want to do it. Um, it's often those jobs that give you these big breaks. Um, and that's certainly been true in my career. It's never been the big jobs that have led to success. It's been the little small ones, like the handshake deals, um, which a lot of people tend to neglect. And it's like, oh, that's not worth my time because they're not paying me full rates. But if you say yes, um, you just you know, give it everything and you never know what's around the corner. Welcome to the Sam Gash Podcast. These are conversations with trailblazers, rule breakers, and those who pave their own lane and venture boldly into the unknown. By entering this uncharted arena, they inevitably stumble, yet they all display an ability to innovate and contribute, even when the odds are not in their favor. We skip over their highlights reel and go into the guts of who they are and what they believe in. I'm your host, Samantha Gash. And I'm an endurance athlete, a former corporate lawyer, and social impact entrepreneur. It is my absolute privilege to create the space for these guests. If you found these conversations to be of value or have any feedback, please subscribe, rate, and review, and I hope you enjoy. I'm so delighted to bring you this week's conversation with Dean Leslie. He hails from South Africa. He's a filmmaker and creative who founded Wandering Fever with his wife, Hannah. He's also a friend, and I have spent time with him in the United States, in Chile, Antarctica, uh, through the lens of adventure and trail running. Now, Wandering Fever is this company that's born out of a love for the wild and its ability to tell stories through film. And and him and Hannah are this dynamic duo that are darn good at what they do. Dean is responsible for most of Salomon's TV summer films, and over the past decade, his work has taken him to every continent on the planet, chasing down the world's foremost endurance athletes and documenting the way in which they interact with some of the world's most stunning landscapes. He's a Cape Town resident, and he spends most of his time on the road, and we discuss that challenge that it takes to pursue what you're passionate about and sometimes the incompatibility with balance. His work is expansive. It addresses the struggles of the athletes with empathy but without drama. Uh, He explores the relationship that those people have with the locals. It's curiosity, but he certainly does it without blindly um, exploiting foreign places and its people. This conversation is fascinating. Dean is incredibly fascinating. It's very nice to be able to have an opportunity to flip the lens and focus on the filmmaker. I hope you love this conversation as much as I did having it. Internet. (laughs) (laughs) You just had to make this challenging for yourself. (laughs) Yeah, no, you've got to keep it exciting, yeah. Um, is it because, what did you say about the blackouts? Is this something that regularly happens? Yeah, so our, our power, like power company, um, which is also government owned, has been in trouble for years. So we we get intermittent like periods of rolling blackouts when one of the stations goes down. So countrywide, you get put on these different areas, and then you just get scheduled blackouts. Um, every day, depending on what stage the like, what stage of emergency it is. Um, so, like at nine o'clock, 
suddenly all our power cuts. So I've been trying to get run power to the internet for like 40, 45 minutes now, trying to get it all running. Do yeah. you get notice that you're going to be in a blackout? Um, they give they give you notice saying they're going to stage two, but sometimes they'll say we're going to stage two at nine when it's nine o'clock, and then if you're in that first section, then it just cuts. You're not in Cape Town. You're a bit further out, aren't you? Yeah, I'm about, we actually moved about, it's about an hour from the city centre south, so as far south as you can go right on the, the tip. So we, we're actually on the fence line of the Cape Point National Park. Um, in a little village there. Oh, it must be pretty beautiful there then. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Uh, I've got like 50 meters from the beach and then I've got mountains behind me. So just sort oh. of nature, it's, it's amazing. Well, I love that this is how we've decided to catch up and I'm just recording it. But, you know, for anyone who listens to it, just know it's two people who haven't seen each other a while also catching up. <laughs> <laughs> Where I'm actually planning to put, you know, you a little uncomfortable right now and, like, flip the position because you're normally the one that's, you know, gently interrogating or capturing the observations of other people. But, uh, yeah, how does it feel to have to be the person who's interviewed? Um, yeah, I've, I've got more used to it um, over, over the last few years, um, mostly because of all the interviews I've done which are conversation-based. And I do like having conversations with people, mm. and learning what other people are doing. Um, but yeah, I have. I always struggle talking about work specifically, and yeah, I'm, I'm fairly private generally. Um, I don't share a lot. So I'm, I'm not I know you are. media. <laughs> <laughs> so I've really try to keep my let my work speak for itself. Yeah, people are voyeuristic, as you know. And uh, I think there is this increasing interest in getting to know the person behind the lens. And you've also placed yourself as the narrator in a couple of your pieces. And so you mm. are in there now. Mm. A filmmaker's voice is generally silent. Um, it, it's still there, whether you hear it or not. And as I've had projects where you become more intimately involved, um, it just felt natural and you know, it just felt part of it. So I'm very hesitant to push myself in into a story unnecessarily, but when it's required and it adds to that story and it helps someone else tell their story, um, I've generally, you know, it's something that I look to now where about five years ago I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even thought about it. I actually love it. I, I've gone back and watched a lot of your things in the last week and I, I feel like it adds a lot of depth because you, you operate in very small teams, like often it's just you and maybe one other person who's there and so you are a, you're not just the filmmaker, you're, you know, logistics and you're their morale support and, you, you know, you are a feature in that experience and I, I have found the relationship between filmmaker and creating the story and then not trying to be in the story, a really interesting line. Mm. And in this conversation I do want to talk about, you know, how relationships and trust with your subjects has influenced the the pieces that you've created. But I don't want to jump too much into that before going to the very beginning because you we kind of met not ridiculously far from the beginning of your career in mm. um, documenting, you know, the trail running arena. Back in 2010, we met in, in Chile 
And then yep. we've actually met in scattered parts all over the world. I was trying to have a think, like we met at Western States in the US. Were you in Nepal with Ryan when he did Racing the Planet? Uh, no, I wasn't on that trip. Um, I was actually trying to remember no, which was the last time we saw each other. I know, Western States, which is always such a bizarre place to see people because everyone's got this job to do, whether it's to race, support, to film, (laughs) and it's like seeing everyone and you want to spend time with them, but you've got a mission. (laughs) Yeah, totally. If we were to go to the beginning, um, which was before 2010, um, can you give me like this, and everyone who's listening, an overview of how you came into the world of documenting trail races? Yeah, I'll try. I'll I'll keep it as short as I can because I never dreamed or planned to be a filmmaker. Um, And I didn't actually know what I wanted to be when I left school. Um, But I was given some advice when I was about 18 to to kind of follow things that gave you enjoyment and made you happy. Um, You know, because if you did that, then they everything requires effort. So if you're enjoying something that you're doing um, and then you find it challenging and you want to do it more, then you put more effort into it. And if you put enough effort into anything, you, you can make a success of it. it. You know, when that success comes and what you, what you, um, you know, what you think, well, what's the word? Uh, like I'm trying to quantify the word success because it's a, a very loose word, but whatever that means for you. Mm. And so, yeah, I actually started drawing um, when I left school um, to study animation. I was doing line animation. Um, and then animation took off into the 3D world, so I started photography. And through photography, I fell into film. And then, um, But I didn't want to be another cog on a set, so I started making my own films and I started a little company trying to you know, put myself in a place where um, people would actually pay me to make make movies. Um, and then Ryan called me, who I, I've known Ryan since, since I was six years old. Um, and he called me one day out of the blue saying that he was entered into this 250K desert race in China and he thought it would be funny if we made a little documentary about it, which just was so outside of any terms of normal in my life at the time. I didn't even know that things like that existed. And so we just started talking about it. We, we couldn't, no one was going to give us money. No one knew Ryan at that time. No one knew me. I, I, I didn't have any films to my name, just a few music videos. But we persisted over a period of years and eventually, um, you know, kind of got it together. And, and it really launched my trajectory into the outdoor world in, in terms of filmmaking. Um, it opened up a lot of doors for me. And I like to think, you know, Ryan did most of the stuff on his own, but I like to think that that partnership um, also helped him because we we made some movies that did really well early on um, and helped put his name out there. But Ryan did most of that on his own. I piggybacked off his coattails a lot. Oh, I don't know if you're right about that. I think partnership (laughs) is a really good word. I think you and Ryan created uh, a very unique partnership with diverse skills and Ryan, you know, clearly has quite a business head on him because, you know, it was he had never even done an ultra race and he thought it was a good idea to document his experience before documenting trail running was even a thing. So he was, I feel like he was ahead of the curve with that and he obviously recognised that he had a friend that he knew since he was six who had skills in that area. 
Yeah, I like to think we have very similar approaches in how we go about things. Um, it's not a it's not about an end goal or this end vision or some picture you've seen on a magazine. Um, it's really about getting into the nitty gritty of the process. Um, and Ryan's really understood that in terms of like what what entailed like what it in, what entails being a professional athlete. Um, and that's no longer singular. You know, you don't just win contests or, or races or whatever it is. There's a lot, there's a lot more to it. Um, and he's really always understood that. And he's definitely, media has been a huge part of that. Um, and I come from a perspective of someone that lo- loves stories. I, I, I love being able to give someone a voice to their story. And so I've worked with Ryan a lot in terms of tone and how to trans. Translate, like, translate your experience to people that weren't there. And so that, that partnership has really aided both of us in terms of getting comfortable speaking to someone, um, helping them voice, voice their narrative, um, and, then, and then going back and, and playing, playing Tetris with that afterwards. And, and then the opportunities it's led to, I just feel like giving, having a certain amount of time of, like, to practice, and then you get these... You know, I suppose every couple of years you have, you never know which, which, which scenario it is, but there's always an opportunity floating. And so I've always been under, my belief has always been that if you, if someone offers you something, whether it's a, a, like a hundred dollar job or a $50,000 production, um, if you commit to it, you go into it a hundred percent, you give it everything you can because Often it's those little hundred dollar or freebie jobs that you do that you've agreed to because you want to do it. Um, it's often those jobs that give you these big breaks, um, and that's certainly been true in my career. It's never been the big jobs that have led to success. It's been the little small ones, like the handshake deals, um, which a lot of people tend to neglect. And it's like, oh, that's not worth my time because they're not paying me full rates. But if you say yes, um, you just you know. Give it everything, and you never know what's around the corner. And Ryan's similar in that in that regard. You know, he gives it everything all the time, no matter what it is. Yeah, so I've learned a lot working with him, and I'm very grateful for the opportunities that follow. I do later want to have a look at like what you believe makes a great partnership. But if we go back still to you know, so Ryan obviously did well in the Gobi. He did well in uh, the Sahara. At what point in that kind of journey along the four deserts did you guys manage to kind of pull funding or support that you could start to film what he was doing in the running world? When he went to the Gobi, um, no one knew who he was. And when he won the first stage, he made uh, local newspapers in South Africa. So immediately he got quite wide, like, you know, he was quite widely read and, um, and then he won the next stage and the next stage and it just started the snowball effect in the media in South Africa. Um, South Africans love successful sports stories and um, he almost immediately in, in a span of a week became a household name and when he came back, um, you know, at that, you know, initially the docu was like, oh, this will be a cool adventure and they like, wow, this is actually, this is a, a real story going on here. And then he followed that up with Sahara and we didn't manage to get funding in between Gobi and Sahara. But then he went to Sahara and he won every stage there and he won that race. And um, he started getting featured on news, like on TV and 
um, it became really big. And then the next race he entered was Namibia, which is right on our doorstep. And so when that happened, it was, was like kind of a no-brainer to to go to Namibia because it was relatively inexpensive. Um, and we cut a deal with the current affairs program here to sell them footage of what we got on that race, um, which covered our hard costs. And so that's really how it kicked off. And then we cut a promo off that race for the, the greater project that we wanted to do. Um, and then someone in Salomon saw that promo um, and I got a phone call out of the blue offering me a year contract to follow the Salomon team um, to may start making films on trail running. And that was the beginning of what later became Salomon TV. I mean, it just gives such credit to what you said before about with every opportunity be 100% in because you just never know where it's going to go. I know you did a bit of surfing um, uh, cinematography, but had you done anything in like the trail running space? Uh, no, not at all. Um, you know, that, that, that whole world uh, was just brand new to me. So I came at it from um, a film filmmaking aspect. So immediately the biggest challenge was how do you make running look cool? Because at that time, it wasn't really cool. Um, there wasn't a lot of media around it. Um, and even the gear was difficult. The, the gear was bigger and you couldn't just run around with a little camera on a, a gimbal. It didn't, none of that existed. So that was immediately the challenge. But uh, what was compelling to me was the, um, the arenas that Ryan was running in were these massive wild landscapes. And, and, and that's something that's always spoken to me um, and cinematically, I, I found it very similar to surfing, where you have these big, huge, expansive um, pieces of wild landscape with a solitary figure, um, like very much alone. And that those images was really what drew me in. Um, and you know, I, I had a massive interest in why. Why was that so compelling? Because it wasn't only to me. Ryan was, you know, Ryan was suddenly at the forefront of media. Why, why was this so compelling? And how did someone that didn't run suddenly pick up and, you know, just kind of burst into the world scene um, of running? How did that happen? And how was that possible? And, and then you had the born to run craze running parallel to that. And, and so there was all these things that started happening in 2009 and, and 2010 um, that I had massive interest in, not necessarily to do with uh, competitive running, just the idea of it. And, and running is, you know, it, it's, it's so, such a deep thing. It's so simple, but so deep because um, it's almost everyone can do it and, um, and, and, and almost no one you know, a lot, you would, it's hard to put a like, group of people together and that none of them are all going to run for the same reasons. Everyone's got their own reasons why they're running. And I found that really interesting from a story perspective because it was endless. There, there was like, <laughs> it was infinite in terms of the narratives you could tell around that. And that doesn't really exist in the rest of the outdoor adventure world. I do find it compelling that you find these similarities of the lone figure either in the waves or in the desert or in the mountains and it doesn't matter what is the landscape, it's that expansive nature and it's the internal um, nature of what's happening for the person, like why are they there, how far can they go, what's their barriers, what's going to stop them. 
um, I, I can see that I'm actually visualizing it right now in all those different places. It actually didn't matter that you had never trail, you know, been a trail runner so much yourself. In fact, I think that was probably the beauty of it because you were speaking as the audience. And at that point, so few people in the world trail ran, even less did stage races. So it was almost critical that you came of it from a perspective of what is this thing? Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think that that speaks to anything, um, that you have all these little niche endeavors that people do. And, and I love them. I like, you know, all these little pockets of humanity that um, with people of similar interest and they like little pools of knowledge you know, that aren't in the, the, greater, the greater community. So um, like my brother's a fly fisherman and sometimes I go spend an evening when they're tying flies as a group, they, they do it once a week. And the, the knowledge pool in there is, <laughs> it's incredible. Um, and I found the same, the same thing. And, and what I'm talking about in terms of that knowledge is, you know, understanding of ocean currents and what, what fish are in certain temperatures and where they're going to be and just stuff that we don't know at, at all. And, and I had that in surfing as well throughout my whole life. I learned so much um, just by being in the ocean and, and having a connection with it that I, I really got a lot of life lessons out of it. Um, but how do you take those things and then and, and make it interesting? And so to, to a greater audience that has never, they're not in it at all. They're, and I wasn't in running. So I was just finding these pockets of interest um, which I found compelling, and then I would dive into that, or it would be an interesting character. Um, and you know, my first year in the US um, in 2011 was really just, um, you know, we were busy with the project with Ryan, and we put out feelers before we went to the US, and we were just searching on Google and picking up names and and kind of blind emailing people. And one of the first people I emailed was Bernd Heinrich. Um, who had written Why We Run, um, and we just sent him a blank, e like just a blind email, and we got an email back saying, you know, um, I live in a cabin like four hours north of the airport in Boston. Um, you're welcome to come, just drive here, pull off on this lay-by, walk up a one-mile track into the forest, I'll be there. Um, and that was kind of the deal, and... You know, that, that was a, my first experience in the U.S. was literally just driving, pulling off on the side of the road, taking our backpacks and hiking into a forest looking for a cabin. Um, and then we spent a week with, um, which was, you know, just the most incredible experience. I, if like I never did film after that, it would have been fine because um, I just suddenly was meeting like fascinating people. And then we went across and we met um, Cavallo Blanco, and Scott Jurek and Tony Kropitscher and, and then they introduced me to Dakota Jones and Joe Grant and, you know, this was all in 2011 and I just met all these people and I just, you know, it was just like totally new to me and I found it fascinating and I wanted to tell the stories and I was given a, I was given a platform to do that, um, which was, you know, very unique in terms of what Salomon allowed me to do over the following years, um, I, I've, I was really, really lucky. What kind of autonomy did Salomon give you, um, particularly in those you know first couple of years? Yeah, so the, the first two years, um, they they really didn't know 
there was a bit of disagreement in in the marketing team there of whether you could actually make films on running um, and make them interesting to a wider audience. Um, and they were referencing the success of free ski TV. So Salomon have had free ski TV for over a decade. It's been going strong. Um, so they just didn't know what was possible and if it was possible. So we started initially um, following the team, which was also a new thing in running at the time, especially in trail running, to have a, a running team. Um, and we started following them around the world to, to various races. Um, and we did that for two years. And I, I worked the hardest I've ever worked. I was away five months a year. Um, and just like it was nonstop. We were delivering five days after the race. The film would come out. or just had such a massive scope of practice over that two years that I got, you know, to the middle of the second year, I realized that um, in the time frame and budgets that I was given, I, I couldn't really do it any better. I had like, I'd, I'd maxed out like my ability in terms of what I could do in that space. And at that, in 2012 races, it started kicking in and I saw that uh, races were doing, their, starting to do their own videos, like really early days, like starting. And I felt that what I was doing wouldn't add a lot of value for a lot longer to Salomon because everyone would be doing it in a very short space of time. Um, you, cause you were just seeing all the stuff happening around and this, this like slow momentum build around the sport. Um, and I'd see, I've seen it happen in surfing. So you just kind of know what's coming. Um, and I just knew that I would be without a job. Um, if I didn't change something immediately, like the, I would be, um, you know, uh, I would be easily replaceable by a lot of uh, a lot of individuals. And so we had a meeting at the end of 2012. And at the time, the hits were kind of stagnating. I think they only had like 50,000 likes on the Salomon running page. It was really like kind of still grassroots. And we weren't speaking to people that weren't interested in running because we were, it was all about competition focus. And so we went into 2012 and I, it was the first time I met the entire marketing department. I'd just been dealing with the running guys. And um, I, we put together a presentation. So it was me and uh, the, my business partner at the time. And we put together this big presentation on a PowerPoint. <laughs> I, was, I really didn't know what I was doing. but um, And my whole thing was about surfing. Um, so I went into this um, kind of mountain company and I showed them what happened to surfing. Um, and how it got professionalized and how there was inevitably a split off to like the soul surfing movement um, and then the competition movement and how the, you know, that soul surfing movement and the lifestyle the like how, how people lived it um, really captured wider imagination than the competition ever could because competition's always a little bit um, to your, average person it's intimidating right if you've never run um it's intimidating to start stand at a start line and you don't really want to watch it either because you can't relate and so we sat in this whole meeting and 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 they said cool then what do you propose so then what at the time i um we started pitching and i pitched the film on i pitched a film on bernd heinrich who i had met in 2011 and i started pitching all these all these stories um 
and they they were just kind of nodding like fairly quiet and I uh, I said well, well you know like what's what's the limitations on me here um like what what do you need and um one of the guys who's since left he he turned and he said we just want hits so whatever's going to give <laughs> so so I said well the, you know like this is like what I'm saying now is what I know I can do I can, I know I can do this and I, and I know it's interesting so I'm assuming like I'm <laughs> no marketing guru, but I'm assuming the hits will follow, right? And it hasn't, it's not being done by anyone. We'd be like leading, leading the, like the charge here. So they said, well, so I said, do I have to feature Salomon athletes? No, you don't have to feature Salomon athletes. Um, you can do whatever you want, as long as it line, aligns with the brand ethos. And so I left that meeting on the very clear understanding that if I failed, um, I was out. And so this was it, like this was the gamble. And I left, we left there, I think in November, December, 2012, I didn't show them one clip till the following October after we had shot everything, which was, I think like eight episodes around the world. The first thing they saw was the trailer. And then the first episode was Bernd Heinrich, who was actually wearing a North Face jacket, the whole film. And so I, you know, I've, I was almost, like, I was almost sick with um, stress at the time, but uh, it, it kind of just resonated and, and it took off from there. And, and, and I was given relative autonomy for the following, you know, five or six years um, to kind of do, do what I wanted. Man, it's huge. And I think it's, it's very worthy of also kind of like extracting from that this importance in any type of business of making sure that you get ahead of the curve. If a space that you're working in is beginning to become saturated and if people are offering it for a lower price point and potentially can do it better because of their local proximity, which maybe these race organisers could, you know, they can put more people out on the course, they can cover it better, then you need to think what's the next thing. And do you remember how Solomon articulated to you what their brand ethos was? Um, they, they didn't actually. Um, I only started receiving brand Bibles in about 2015. But at the time, what they told me um, was that, you know, this was early days still and it's changed since then. But at that time, they said, you know, if we look at trail running as a pie and we've got 30% of that pie, our goal with Salomon TV is to make the pie bigger, not our slice just the whole pie. And so that was the approach. So their ethos ethos was to grow trail running. Um, And so for me, that was like a very easy thing to understand because you need to do access beyond the athlete. It had to go to people that were interested in nature and wilderness and hiking and even surfers. And, you know, so we, we really concentrated on just growing the whole the whole idea of trail running. And then they were happy if their percentage stayed the same, but, you know, that percentage is bigger if the whole if the whole thing gets bigger. I mean, you have to understand that you played a huge role in building this sport to what it is. It's a big thing to know that you are the custodian of stories that was initially in a niche sport that exponentially grew through your time in Salomon TV. You know, I, I was just a small cog in a wheel that was turning regardless. Um, I was very fortunate that my skill set um, and my interests and my life 
all this coincided at that same time. Um, I was also at a stage in my life where I didn't have a lot going on, you know, like I could put everything into work and I did, you know, for 10 years, work was everything. Um, I wanted to learn how to be the best filmmaker I could be. And that was the most important thing to me. You know, if it wasn't, if it wasn't me in my position, it just would have been someone else. And it, it, it would have happened regardless. And I think that's true for a lot of things when, when things like, you know, crest and, and, and become something new. Well, I just don't 100% agree. Like I, I think, sure, the popularisation of the sport, you know, is quite likely to have happened. But I think in those years, the way that it grew in popularity um, was very focused on the environment, the humanisation of the stories. You know, we talk about what makes a sponsored athlete these days. And you're right, it's not just about, you know, talent. And I actually wrote a list before of what I, as you were speaking, what I think it takes to be a trail runner and maybe an athlete in any scene is I think there needs to be relatability, likability, talent, and I think now we're getting this fourth wave of contribution Mm. and I think we're seeing a growing need that an athlete who's a very potentially I person that they need to have a degree of like selfishness in order to do what they do, I think we're seeing a wave of how do you contribute to a broader world. But I think in terms of that, particularly that relatability and likability point, the stories that you shared helped do that, helped foster that, which increased the amount of people that came into the sport because they felt this could be me. And I think often when you just see talent being shared and so many like sporting um, documentaries show just talent and particularly back I think 10, 10 years ago were and I think you really played a great role in making people connect with the person. Yeah, thank you. Like, uh, yeah, I suppose I agree to a point. I, I just, you know, maybe if it was someone else, maybe tonally it would have been different Um and, and that's where I am very grateful that I was able to showcase certain individuals that deserved it, um, like in my opinion. And, and, and so if, if there's any influence, it's, it's a tonal one of being, you know, just I, like soft is a good word. I feel like a lot of things are just like quite hard <laughs> on the throat. And I, I, I just like the idea of telling just interesting stories in a very gentle manner. Um, and there wasn't any agendas to them other than sharing that story. And by, by the popularity of those stories, everyone benefited. And it's, you know, it's an issue that I have consistently um, when you work with different brands, this kind of need to like shove it in people's face. But people are just really intelligent now and you don't need to shove it in their face. And it works time and time again when you see these brands that have you know, they're, they're, they're willing to take the risk of just telling good stories and to be associated with those stories without having the need for a logo every five minutes or a foot shot or something. And those early years at Salomon really gave me that platform to be able to tell those, those cool stories with like burnt in a cabin in the woods and um, certain athlete stories that I was able to tell through that. Outside of Salomon, what other brand do you think does that really well? That must, and whether you're the one that's sharing the stories or not, who, what other brands are, are able to portray a story? Yes, their brand might be subliminally in it, but it is not a hard sell. Yeti have amazing, amazing mm. films. 
Um, Patagonia have always really told amazing long form, um, long form films, um, even short, you know. Um, and then uh, recently in the trail running uh, space, um, I've really noticed uh, Meryl have really been, you know, doing, there's not a lot of times like I've, like where you watch something like, damn, I wish I, <laughs> I wish I did that. Um, and I've had a couple of those with Meryl. He's wow, like, that was super cool. I wish I was on that shoot. So yeah, I, I can't. Nothing else really pops up offhand. Like, but surfing's done it all the time. Like, it's happened in surfing throughout. Like, I just grew up mm. at where it was showcasing a culture and a lifestyle, um, and brands piggybacked off that. And and inevitably, what happens, which is bizarre to me, is that. You have these models that work, like it, it was working in surfing. And then this kind of greed takes over. The companies start doing better and then they want more and more and more. And then, you know, you bring in guys from outside of that culture and they try to start imposing um, marketing like value sets on, on, the, on the, the media you're creating and say, well, no, we need more brand awareness and and slowly you just start eroding away at the authenticity of the storytelling till people just don't believe you anymore. Um, because storytelling um, is not a marketing ploy. You can't, like, you can't fake it. It's got to be real. When someone's telling you something about them, um, it, it has to be real and you've got to feel it. And if you don't, it's, it's like an advert. Um, and the difference between a documentary and an advert is truth. Um, and so the minute you start eroding the truth um, and trying to like place in things that shouldn't be in there, um, you're now in the, like, you're now making a commercial. Um, and that is a, like a fairly consistent battle you will have. But, uh, you know, like saying that, uh, like a, a brand like Red Bull, I think they've always skirted those lines really well and I've really enjoyed working with them over the last few years with Media House um, because they've really been pushing narrative and story um, and, and often at the expense of brand. So they'll, you know, they'll pick story and narrative truth over brand product shots. But it's on their media platform so people know that it's connected without seeing a Red Bull being drunk. Exactly. And, 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 you know, Red Bull athletes, they, it's hard not to miss the branding when it's on your head. So, you know, it's all done in a, a way that yeah. just well, works. <laughs> I mean, they're very, very clever with how they're, they're doing it. You know, in that year when you obviously, you know, you put forward eight different stories, you had the autonomy, I'd love to kind of know, like, what was it that drew you to the different stories and maybe even if you could just kind of showcase a couple of them um, and kind of dissect them a bit? Yeah, so, um, well, with Bernd, um, he was kind of this, like, cultish figure who had an amazing running track record. He held various world records at different times for distance running or track-based. Um, and he had written this book, um, which kind of preceded Born to Run, um, and then he just lived this very simple life and he was just, a, like when I'd met him, he was fascinating and he, you could just learn so much from him. And, you know, when we started the series, it, like what's the byline of the series and we wanted to grow trail running. So it's like, well, why we run? And, and so <laughs> the minute I pitched that and the Salomon Rakeen, like, 
Grant's book was called Why We Run. So I just started with him because it made the most sense, you know. Um, and then through the two years before that, I had been um, building up uh, relationships uh, with various trail runners and, and learning intricate details of their lives, like in, in a private setting um, of just, you know, what they were going through and the struggles they were having and, and all these things that were going on behind the scenes. And, and through making films with them, I'd built an element of trust. I had long conversations with different athletes. And, and so that's how um, Anna's Anna Frost story of home came about. Um, of what she was going through. And, and at that time, she was like in it. When we, when we filmed in New Zealand, she was like deep in it um, in terms of like really getting to grips with a lot of life experience at the time. And uh, it just kind of snowballed like that where we were looking for not looking at races, but, you know, we would focus on the narratives around that. And to be honest, I'm, I'm even struggling to remember what we um, actually, the other films we made that year, that was 2013. Because we, yeah, over the last like eight years, I've averaged about 130 minutes of content a year. So you said you're away for about five months in the year to kind of create that. And then obviously you got post-production. So how are you balancing that with home life and I know there was obviously obviously a shift in your life in the last couple of years but back then when it was everything you were single-minded focused just like an athlete is when they want to be the best in their game how did you try and create some balance or was there just none yeah to be honest there wasn't um I didn't know that at the time I only know that now um but yeah I had no balance and I don't think balance is possible it was something I chased for a decade you know, when, when you're passionate about something, like balance balance and passion are mutually incompatible. Um, you Because when you're passionate about something, you put so much into it that other spheres of your life kind of fall away and they don't get as much attention as they need. Um, and it was actually, uh, I think it was February last year, I went over to, I think it was Vimp. Yeah, the Vancouver mm. National Mountain Festival. I was, I was holding, hosting a workshop there, and I had a few. I had Joe's film actually screening there, um, uh, the Middle Way, and we went to a talk with um, Chris Burkhardt, and he's like the consummate professional, and he just hit all the keys his whole in his whole presentation, and you kind of felt like he had done it like a million times, and he was just kind of nailing it. Um, and then someone asked him a question um, in the Q&A afterwards and they asked him is this exact question. And when he was 21, his mentor told him that you have uh, five, four burners in life, um, work, family, health, and friends. And uh, if you want to be great at one of those, you have to drop one and ideally two to be a to be like incredible at one of them. Um, and so he decided he was dropping friends. And I just, you know, I, I just sat there and it really like just something clicked because he had consciously done that. And I'd gone through a decade of my life and I had never consciously chosen, but I had chosen. 
Um, I had chosen to give everything to work and a lot of, you know, when things weren't going well in other parts of my life, I was like, wonder why, you know, why is it not going well? Um, and it took, you know, like in my late 30s to be like, damn, like uh, I chose that and, and I, you know, I wasn't the best friend I could have been to like lifelong friendships. And I'm so thankful that um, my relationship uh, made it through that and it was touch and go a lot. Um, because you can't away four to five months a year for 10 years and think that everything's going to be hunky-dory <laughs> in your love life. And so, yeah, I was, I was actually, I was quite angry with myself last year for a long time because I, I'm quite a deliberate person and I'm very analytical and I, I look at things and I try problem solve and, and I'd never actually just consciously made this choice. And, but I had made the choice. Um, and that really bugged me. And, and so that, that has formulated a lot of, you know, where my life is now moving. And I'm trying to be a lot more conscious about where I'm putting in effort um, and how much of that effort is going in there and how much of effort falls away in another part of my life. And if that's worthwhile, you know. Um, and I think that's important because everyone always talks about this term balance. But it's, you know, if you love something and it's easy to get sucked in um, and film like film. You never, you never master it. It's like, you know, it's why I'm attracted to it. I don't, I, I couldn't, you know, this may, that sounds bad, but I couldn't really care less for the end product. It's that problem solving process. That's all encompassing of like, you start with like an idea and then there's so much that goes into it from a technical perspective and creative and, logistical and and all of the stuff like kind of moving and then you come out with this like perfect little puzzle that's been put together at the end of it and I really enjoy that process um, and it's kind of empty when you finish the film you know you've put everything in it at the time of every sphere of it and then you release it and it's just like you know I imagine you know documenting races or people following goals for years I feel like that it would be a very similar feeling where you put so much effort into something, you finish it and there's this kind of this void. Um, and I've never, I've, I've really always struggled. I've struggled with that. And I just pull myself into the next one and the next one and the next one. until only recently I've like pulled myself out of that cycle um, just to kind of have a little bit of reflection and understand where I want to go. I have so much to ask <laughs> about that. But the first thing I want to say is just to that kind of it's, I really appreciate you you going there because I think there's a lot of people who are going to be have either consciously or unconsciously made a very similar decision. And ugh, I'm just, if the first thing I'm going to say is if you believe that balance and passion are mutually incompatible and you're very conscious of that now and the detriment to maybe other areas of your life, do you still believe that you can pursue passion-fueled like endeavours in the future? Uh, for sure, you know, like I'm old enough now to recognize that um, everything is in motion. Like uh, there's so much movement in your life um, in all senses of the word that it's not static. And who I am today will not be necessarily who I am next year. And so I'm conscious of that now. And, and when I'm in a space and recognizing what space I'm in and, and what what where I'm placing my effort. So it's not to say that I'm not going to make film anymore 
or um, you know, maybe I'll make less films um, because I don't need to make so, you know, it was just ridiculous, the workload that I took on for a decade um, unnecessarily. Um, and so it's just, you know, we, we've just had a little boy like four months ago and that's like my sole focus. Um, and if anything happens in my life outside of that, um, it's like, okay, well, you know, I, I realize there's other, other stuff happening in the world. Is that worth it? Like if that's going to like take, a, and I know how much focus it will take to make another production, how long will that be? How long will I be away from home? Do I want to do that? And, and it has to be worth it um, because I know what my, I know what like I want to be doing. And so when I have a distraction to the things that are important to me, it's just, you know, weighing that up and you can't, nothing's perfect every day. And you, you've got to make sacrifices sometimes and um, do things that maybe you don't necessarily want to do. Um, and so it's just that recognition on a daily basis of like, where am I putting my effort? Where am I putting my focus? And is it worth it? You know, that's the questions I'm kind of asking myself now. It's this conscious awareness and then communication to those who are most important to us. And, I mean, so much congratulations to you and Hannah for a baby boy. And I, I don't know if this insight helps you, but you know how you before spoke about, like, you know, the come down after you, you know, you work on the progress and then the film comes out and then you feel this kind of emptiness and you used to replace it. Another parent analogy that I've always had now that Harry's two and then people are always like oh they were so beautiful and they were so small and little and I have always said to myself if I am just completely present to each stage then I shouldn't long for what's gone because I was there and so if we take that parent analysis into like your work you were in it like don't long for that it's gone. Like you, you experience it on a visceral everything level and when it's gone, that's like the time has passed and we have space, recharge, and then when it's the right time, we move to the next thing. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree more, you know, and you, you might go back. It's, you know, people always ask you if you change things and I, I wouldn't change anything because I learned such valuable lessons um, through, through everything I've been through in my life. Um, I, if I went back, maybe I'd do things differently, but that's only because I'm sitting with a different knowledge base now. And so it's the same with uh, flows that, um, you know, I've just been so fortunate the last few months um, with everything happening in the world and the whole world seems like it's changed and my world changed at the exact same time. And so I've been blessed with this opportunity to, to be home and present every day with him. Um, which is something I'll never get back. And so I'm very aware of that, like how privileged we are at the moment in our little in our little nucleus being together. Yeah, Mark and I remind ourselves that all the time. Like we actually said to, to ourselves, hey, if we actually can't travel for the next two years, which, you know, is plausible, highly mm. plausible, you know, we just said these are the critical years of Harry's life when he's like changing so rapidly and we can't, like, I mean, I always look for the silver linings in any challenging situation, but I was just like, well, that's a beautiful thing. And I'm going to like hold on to that. And, you know, you know, we can make money and we can have different type of experiences down the track, but like the family time right now is powerfully critical for us. A hundred percent. When you kind of came to that awareness, 
um, about what you potentially unconsciously, I guess, um, were sacrificing. When you came back home to Hannah, did you share that realisation with her? Oh, for sure. Um, my, you know, Hannah, I met Hannah through film, um, on a film set. And so our private lives and our careers very much aligned. She's been working on Salomon, the Salomon series with me since 2015. Um, we run a production company together. So we, we share everything um, and we talk, talk through it. And it's not like I had this flash of, you know, overnight, it's like this process. I'm like a very, I'm, I'm a very slow learner. <laughs> it takes, takes time for me to just really formulate everything. And so I talk through it a lot and we, we spoke through it a lot and we just have discussions and, and she's busy studying her PhD and other stuff like that kind of a line. She's doing a PhD in uh, quantitative medicine. Of course she is. Clever. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff she's stuck is aligning with like kind of what we're both going through and um, it's, yeah, we, we, we talk through it a lot and we spoke about being parents for a long time, you know, because we tried for a long time to, to become parents and that was a struggle in itself. So, you know, and, and, you know, it wasn't like everything was fine up until, you know, the beginning of last year. I went through t two years of um, severe stress and depression um, where I was really struggling um, with motivation. Um, and so I knew, I knew something was wrong and I just didn't really understand where it was stemming from um, because materially I had everything I could have ever wanted and career-wise I had everything. And so it just took me a long time to, to get to a space where I had the tools to kind of move in the right direction. I have um, heard you before talk about the hole and the depression that you experience after filming Lessons from the Edge. <laughs> um, do you, is, this is this a time frame that coincides a bit? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I just, uh, it was a wild, like it was really a wild experience. I didn't prepare myself for it because I just thought it was another production and you kind of get a little bit blasé with these things. Um, we had done all the logistics and everything and we had all our contingencies in place and everything, but you can never prepare for the human experience. And so, yeah, when it, when it started going down and it kind of like went a little bit left field, like on day three, um, and then it just didn't stop. Um, and it was this barrage of experience, um, like very intense experiences um, for five weeks. And it just was relentless. It was just every day um, you were just, your emotions were so heightened because there was so much on the line, either for you or for Ryan and Rayner or whatever was going on, that when I came back um, from that trip, I almost like, just like didn't I didn't do anything. I didn't go in the mountain. I didn't surf. I like I was quite happy to be in a like nice square room with walls that was kind of like locked me from any more experience. Like I was I had had enough. I felt like I had just been overloaded and I'd had enough and I just wanted to be in a little safe zone for a while and that lasted for a few months. Um and mm. The thing that I really battled with uh, was what I was there, what I was doing there. 
And, you know, it, it made it a little bit easier that it was with Ryan because there's a little bit more meaning in it. You know, it's not just a job, like he's a friend as well. But then at the end of the day, on these trips, I'm there to make a film. And I'm no, under no false illusions that the film's going to change the world. It's not. Um, it's, you know, you might, you might, it might alter someone's trajectory in their life by inspiring them or something. But, you know, the world is not going to be any different um, if that film doesn't get released. And when your life's at risk, um, <laughs> you, you really struggle to vindicate the risk based on what you're doing there. And I have struggled with that a lot when I've had life-threatening experiences during a production. And it just at some point feels like you're being a bit of an idiot. Um, and so I've tried to, you know, and I'm glad that I did that trip at the time because I have, I'm quite happy to have zero ego when you're on the mountain and just be like, I'm not comfortable. We're going to turn around. Um, whatever that means, we'll deal with it as it happens because we're just here making a film and this isn't worth anyone dying. Um, but then dealing with Ryan and Rayner who didn't have that viewpoint or Ryan had that viewpoint to a point, Rayner didn't. Um, and you're like, okay, well, this is mm. important to him and who am I to stop him doing something that's really important to him. And so really trying to blend that line um, between being rational and, and uh, you know, um, responsible um, to being fair. And, and then, you know, there's only four of us there. It was me, Jared, Ryan, and Reno. And then we had a guide in different sectors of the trip. Um, but, you know, no one else cared. You know, if Ryan and them, you're, when they came in from the Dolp region and they're like, you know, Reno's going to lose his fingers and they like nearly died. You know, every, all the Nepalis around them, just like, well, then just stop. <laughs> just stop doing what you're doing. Don't carry on. Um, and then it's like me and Jared and telling, we know that they're not going to stop. So then you, <laughs> yeah. like you're already in an irrational situation and you're just trying to make the best of it. So it becomes like quite a, it's, it's just complex. And, you know, you've got to, there's, there's certain lines that I'm no longer willing to cross. Um, and that, but that trip took us right to the, right to the edge of kind of rational, <laughs> rational. I mean, talk about the most aptly titled documentary. You know, to give some context to the film that we're talking about uh, and in the experience, it's uh, a film that you made called Lessons from the Edge and it features ultra runners Ryan Sands and Reno uh, Grizel, who embarked on a supported fastest known time of the Great Himalayan Trail uh, in Nepal. The route traverses um, 870 miles. It includes 230,000 feet of climbing, which is well over 70,000 metres, uh, and it goes across you know, the most epic landscape of the Himalayas. And the guys finished the trail in 25 days, 3 hours and 24 minutes. They bested the previous record of 28 days, 13 hours and 56 minutes, and, you know, that's all raw numbers and data and it's impressive, but the film showcases the real 
struggle and the complexity of that project where because the guys were going for fastest no time, they went uber lightweight, uh, they had no sleeping bag, uh, really minimal equipment and like the challenges were to be honest, they seemed like many of them were quite insurmountable and, and the guys do push through, but you see your um, challenge as a filmmaker in it because you are the narrator of the film and in the questions that you ask the guys, you know, you say to them, is your life, is your life worth this? Um, are you pushing too far? And I guess I, I'd like to know, you know, do you feel like you guys were prepared for everything that came your way and do you feel like that you went too far yeah like like interesting like sometimes you make a decision not 100% knowing you know like that walk-in is a great example um is that you know Mm. you you immediately when when you dealing with the logistics you're like okay we've got a 150 kilometer hike round trip to film like a two-minute start. So that's like, that's where you're starting yeah. when you're at home. And you're like, that's ridiculous. Um, and then you start looking and you're like, okay, well, then we solve that and we're like, we can do that then we can get here. And we and you, so you start that. So then, then you know, weather delays our start and then suddenly that 150K round trip has to happen in a very concentrated period of time. Um, you're like, okay, cool. We can just hike longer, you know, we'll just hike longer days. And, and you, you just, you immediately just enter another version of reality where, you know, like very slowly you're just dealing with issues that if you were thrown into that issue from your normal life, um, you would have very different answers. But because it's the slow buildup experience on experience on experience on experience that when you hit these issues that just you know you know what the answer is in normal life but you're not in normal life now and so many decisions have led to that point that you actually don't have a decision to make you've just got to deal with it because you can't turn around so when we hit that ice it was actually like you know when you like this that ice section in the film was hideous because we couldn't turn around because we were too far to get to anywhere safe before nightfall. So we had committed unknowingly into it. And, and then you got across it knowing that you're literally going to turn around and cross it again the next morning. Um, and so that whole process happened and it was horrible. Just like, try, you know, one of the porters slipped and he like was on like a slow motion glide to the edge and somehow he stopped himself. And he just, it, and then you get, and then now you've got to start the attempt when you get to the bottom of the, you know, into the valley. And then when we were hiking out, Ryan had start, Ryan and Rainer had started, I think at four or 5 a.m. I spent the entire hike out uh, looking, they were both wearing, they were wearing like bright colored tops kind of think Ryan was in red or something or, and I was looking for their bodies at the bottom of the ravine. And, and that was like where my headspace was, you know, on day one of the attempt where I was like, well, if they fall and no one's going to know, cause no one's using the pause. Um, so, you know, like it's logical to look for their bodies in case that has happened. And so you're spending your hike out looking for the bodies of two of your friends um, not knowing if they fell or not, but you have no contact and we're only going to know in like four days time if 
they're okay. Um, so it was just, you know, you're just suddenly in a different space. Um, and then you're in that space consistently for so long that when you come out of it, it's almost like you have post-traumatic stress. It sounds exactly like that. <laughs> when when you saw the guys and you saw them intermittently throughout, um, you know, the 28 days, did how did you play the role of still trying to capture their experience but be their friends and maybe want to encourage them to, I mean, they're tired, they're rattled, they're exhausted, they're not making probably the best decisions. You know, where do you feel your line is in terms of guiding them? Yeah, um, when when I saw them after that, I think it was on day nine, um, I was shocked at their condition uh, and immediately the film, you know, I was fortunate that I had Jared there and me and Jared had, at that time had worked together for a long time, so he knew exactly my process. And so I said to him right then, I was like, this, you, just, you just shoot. Um, just roll everything that's going on while I deal with them when we're in, in person, you know. So they came in and they, they, they looked a little bit shell-shocked and I was really concerned about Reno and he just didn't look good. Well, I just, I'd never seen him in that space before, you know. Um, I'm sure he's been in that space lots, but I'd never seen it. And so, yeah, I mean, he's stoic. He's a very stoic person. Yeah, totally. And and but he had like a glazed look at him, like to him, he didn't look all there. He was more concerned about eating cookies than losing his fingers. Like he was, he was just, it was just, it was scary. And, um, yeah. So yeah, we yeah we that's so immediately then the film was just like whatever. I don't, I don't care. Um, we're just going to get through this. And then after that, I think Ryan, Ryan had been through two quite heavy experiences of like being stranded in the Dolper region and that beginning, which was like totally out of his comfort zone. But he slowly moved into a space of comfort from that point. And so he was quite lucid as Rainer was kind of moving in the opposite direction. Like Rainer was super comfortable in the high mountains. He got out of that. So they kind of like, had this opposite trajectory happening on an individual level. And because I'm so close with Ryan, then we would start chatting um, on WhatsApp because Nepal, it is amazing. You're so remote, but you have so much cell signal in the valleys. Um, And so we would chat almost on a daily basis, if not like every two or three days through voice notes. And he would give me an update. And so we would deal with everything before I actually saw them. So if he was... You know, he would give me an update of where Reno was at, what like potential decisions we need to make, um, if they're going to carry on or whatever it was. And so it became quite easy from that point as like me and him chatting and then working out what we were going to relay to the outside teams um, and, and making sure that we were making the best decisions, even up to the point like right that carried on right to the end. I mean, Ryan, they were both incredible in their own own rights in throughout that experience. But I remember seeing like when Ryan, like taking all that footage, like using the <laughs> GoPro when he's obviously still tired and pushing himself and Rainer is down the bottom of that like little cliff and he's hurt himself and he's kind of crying out or wailing out and like he's still filming with the GoPro and I'm like he, yeah. he had a mission. He, he did his job, <laughs> both no, jobs. For sure, and that and that comes down to trust because when we pitched that that um, project, 
Um, I had no idea if it was possible to make a film because you would see them so intermittently that I didn't know what we would be able to capture. Um, you know, seeing them like just over half a dozen times through three and a half weeks or something. And so, but, but you know, it kind of, uh, it got to a point where we had pitched and we got denied uh, making the film. Um, and no one, no one was keen because there was so there was so much involved in, in going there um, that Ryan and then Rayner booked their tickets um, on their own. So they just bought their tickets and they hired a guide um, to be able to drop off the permits at the different sections. And then I phoned. Um, I had a phone call about some projects with Redboard Venture, and I just said, "Just by the way, um, they've booked their tickets. They're going. So, like." It's happening regardless of the film or not. So I'm just putting that out there. And that got the cogs turning. And then um, we then went in and pitched. And I said to Ryan, well, if we're going to pitch a film, you, it's all on you. Like, and I explained what I would need him to do um, out there for me in, in the spaces in between seeing them. And then we actually didn't even pitch a film. We pitched a media strategy of the trip. So we would release content on, during the trip so that uh, any costs that Red Bull outlay um, would have already been, like they would have got their return before a film was even made. Um, and that's how we got it green lit ultimately. And then an eight minute cut from the trip turned into uh, Lessons from the Edge, which is like a 30 minute docu. How hard was it to create content midway and actually, I mean, I know the idea was to do it. Were you able to deliver that with all the challenges that you were facing? We, we delivered everything we promised, um, but I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> that answers. It was, uh, <laughs> you know, we were carrying edit suites with us out, you know, on like three, four day treks. We covered like 400 Ks on foot. Um, and we were just editing in the middle of nowhere half the time and uploading via cell signals. Um, it was you know, tremendously challenging. I've never, you know, on top of everything else you're going through. So it was, and, and we had an amazing team in Austria kind of receiving the content. Um, so I would send it like kind of rough and then they would polish on their side and then release. Um, so it was an amazing team effort. It was a very successful project for Red Bull in terms of what we were able to achieve on um, a limited budget and a very tiny team. I mean, incredibly small team, and I remember following that live. The The website was calculating everything, um, and you really got to feel at least you were a small window into like what those guys were experiencing. But I, I will say the film takes it onto a whole other level, <laughs> a whole <laughs> other level. <laughs> You know, it's amazing and I think it's very raw and it, it does make you question, like, yeah, I think in aspects of my life, like how far am I willing to go and you say that line, like it's just running. And, and of course, the, the movement is just running, but running stands for so much more and it, we link mm. it to the beginning of this conversation and you said everyone's why is so different. Mm. You know, you get back home, you're not in a great shape and you said, you know, for a month you didn't go outdoors, you didn't even go for a surf. Like how do you start to get out of that? I think it's the normal things, you know, um, like your your wife wanting to go out and do stuff and, you know, just the things that don't, you know, all those, all those, all those just, you know, you think they're all the boring things but they 
all the important things, family and friends and dinners and um, and it just slowly pulls you out and um, and I think it's just important to be open to that. And then on top of that, I had I have the edit, um, and 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 that's generally oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> forgot. <laughs> and and that's quite a that's quite a um, therapeutic process, you know, because. I'm going through everything again. I'm re- I relive everything 300 times. And so it's like a therapy that you just go in and, you know, because the shoots are such a small part of this. Like in filmmaking, the shoots are maybe 10% of the whole process. Um, and so that post-production and that editing process is such a massive part of it. And it takes so much effort, um, more effort than a shoot, shoot takes. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's a form of therapy in itself. And you just sit there and you kind of just graft away at it. And, you know, eventually when that film releases, it's like a little bit of a, that's what the void is. Like, then it's finished. It's done. Like you've got it. It's away from you. It's gone. Um, and I'm thankful that I have that. And then the guys have to live it. Yeah. So then Reino has like the first time he watched the film was in front of a an audience of people, you know, and that was incredibly brave of him. And uh, I'm very thankful to Reno for allowing me to be honest um, because you watch that. And for me, I think he looks like, you know, he comes out looking like Terminator. Um, but for him, he's showing vulnerability. And I don't think that's uh, normal for him. Or Like, you know, he's not used to that. And um, I think he looks tougher through the film, and I think he thinks he looks weaker. Um, and so we've chatted quite a bit about that after the film release, um, about what he took out, and I don't think he's finished. Um, I think there's stuff that he still wants to do that he's kind of le- he left in Nepal. I think Ryan, Ryan mm. I don't think Ryan will go back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, Ryan's actually quite funny in the film. I liked his yeah. humor come out um, because when he, he races, you see that, you know, you know, stealth focus. And I feel in this adventure space where he was so out of his comfort zone for many different reasons, like you were good to bring to show those aspects of him because it makes him more whole. A hundred percent. And he's a funny guy and he's super mischievous. Um, and that's who I know, you know, and we've spoken about like about that a lot is just, you know, like, don't don't be don't be scared to be vulnerable and, and, and make a fool of yourself because it really resonates with people. And so it was something that we spoke about and it, you know, we're doing other projects that are um, something we're still speaking about. But it's important because you can't just be none of us are like we don't all have just one facet. We have like we're all multifaceted and we show things to different people. And and when you're in the public space, it's it's Ryan's entering into it's horrible to say because I'm the same age, but you're entering middle age. And so you got to start looking at like what you want to go to and like, surely you just want to get to a space where you can just be who you are um, unequivocally. I do think there is a, um, you know, with not just documentary films, but the fact that content gets pulled out so often at the moment, um, there's almost a transient nature to, you know, whatever is created because then the next thing's being created. But mm. so often you, you're viewed as an archetype and like a very one-dimensional archetype and you're right, like we're, we're 
multifaceted, complex human beings, but sometimes people just go for the easy, the easy view of who you are. Oh, completely. And, um, like I often get, I think about myself, yeah, people want to show me as like the, the strong, the focused, you know, the serious. And for anyone else who knows me in my personal life, it's like that's like 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what gets shown. And I'm sure for Ryan, who's been shown in so many different features now, you know, it, it's nice for him in this middle age of his life. <laughs> it feels weird to say that because I'm the same age as well. Um, <laughs> I'm just like feeling old. I need to get my walking stick to walk out of this room. Yeah. But um, it's t- it is, that's, that, that's the excitement about kind of maybe entering this new stage where it doesn't have to just be about the race performance. It's about, okay, now let's start revealing the layers of who you truly are of Mm. what all these experiences have created to this point and what is the 90 other percent of what we haven't seen yeah for sure i couldn't agree more and i think it is a journey that you take you know you you're also coming to grips with who you are and and you becoming more comfortable with who you are so as you you know as you enter these new stages then you it, it becomes easier as well i mean i know you're very focused in in family land right now and um, COVID-19 probably creating an interesting pause on the travel that you do. But, you know, it sounds like you and Ryan have got a couple of things in the pipeworks. What do you see um, for as much as you can see right now for the future? Yeah, so um, I had always planned to take, um, I've been winding down my work for the last year and a half now just uh, to get it at a more manageable level. Um, so that I have time in my life for the things that I really want to um, put effort into. Um, I finished a feature documentary um, in March, um, which is due for release later this year, uh, on Ricky Gates's um, Crossing of America. Oh, I'm so, so, so excited to see that. I read his book, so, I mean, I'm... I'm so stoked that you guys partnered up to do that, considering you've done so much together in the past as well. It's a that is a perfect marriage and partnership as well. Yeah, thanks. It was a it was a massive project. Um, took took a couple of years to like kind of piece together, but yeah, it came out at a seventy eight minutes um, seventy eight minute docu. Um, and I'm not actually sure on the release plans for that, but uh, that will be releasing through Salomon. There was, a, there was plan, okay. obviously, the COVID situation threw everything for a loop. So, so that's that will release later this year. And then I have an ongoing project um, with Ryan out in Namibia. Um, we were out there in November last year. Um, and we are returning as soon as we are allowed to um, go back. So we're busy waiting for the borders to open and then we will head back there Um, and that will also be a there will be a film on that you guys have this love affair with Namibia (laughs) yeah just like you know it takes me back to what we were saying in the beginning it is you know I grew up I grew up around the ocean and um, I've always had mountains on my doorstep but there's something about the desert that is very deep and meaningful. And so that landscape is just naturally attractive, like from an you know, from an aesthetic point of view, but also from a from a deeper, like there's just something else there. And um, 
so I've been there quite a few times and, and whenever the opportunity like pops up, I, I'll jump at it because uh, it's a fascinating place. And it's, uh, I think it's like got the least amount of people per capita in the world as well. So it's, it's just a fascinating country. That's like the best place to be right now. Yeah, totally. Oh, well, I mean, I can't wait. Being fans of both yourself and Ryan, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, that piece that you guys create together. And, you know, I have, have very similar feelings about the desert and just even hearing you talk about it, um, it just reminds me of, like, my longingness to kind of get back out there um, and as well as Ricky's piece. But I... I want to thank you for giving me so much of your time. I know it's family morning and um, I'm happy that we could manage to kind of like craft out this between, your, you know, um, internet blackouts <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and my, my, my getting my son to bed and all that kind of um, yeah. coordination as well. But, you know, I'm definitely going to include in the show notes uh, links to Wandering Fever because you have so many of your films on there that are also obviously uh, on Salomon TV as well. But, you know, it was nice to connect with you after chatting to Joe and we chatted about The Middle Way, but also like since chatting to Mark Healy as well and his kind of discussion of, you know, surfing. And I, I do actually really feel that beautiful connection between those two sports. Yeah, for sure. Um I, and there's so much more than just the visual, though, with surfing and running. Um, just the the trajectory the sports have taken on, and and the kind of people that are attracted to them. There's just a lot of, you know, I would have never said this uh, ten years ago, but I get a lot out of being in the mountain on my own, and maybe as much as I would surfing which is quite a, like, feels like a bizarre statement to make, you know, but they, they both are both are and can be meditative practices um, and they can give you a lot in your life um, if you allow that space. I'm really fortunate that kind of trail running fell into, fell into my path um, and that I was able to find it because um, it's given another outlet um, in for coping mechanisms and, and being a better person, trying to be a better person. Oh, before we just jump up, I have to ask you, how many times do you get pitched by people to make a film about them? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you get a lot, I get a lot of emails, um, but they're all the same. It's very rare that you get a unique one, um, but they're always like going to do some crossing somewhere in aid of some charity. It's, it's very rare that you get someone that's got something to say. I feel like you, you know, I, I've learned a lot from what you and Ryan have done over the years and seeing it happen and, and having like a little inside view in, in what it takes. Um, it's just been really incredible um, to, watch, to watch you make a success of something that you, you really loved um, and, and put so much effort into it. And, and I feel like a lot of people want the end, the end part of the process, but they're not willing to really like play their part in that process. And, and it's all about the process and the effort that takes to get, get you somewhere because ultimately where you think you want to be is not where you want to be. So if you're not finding the value sets like in your journey, then the journey is pointless, right? Um, and to watch your journey and Ryan's journey and like to be small part of Ryan's and, 
you know, to have met you right at the beginning has been uh, really like phenomenal to watch. Uh, I'm just like blown away um, because I know what it takes. Well, it's, I, I love that I met you guys at the beginning and it's been like a pleasure to watch your journey and to talk about like the process as opposed to the end state. I think it's never been more critical for people to be like that. And I actually wrote something today that I think fits with that. I, I wrote, this year I've learned the value in having a goal, but for the focus to be on the progression and the growth towards it, not necessarily in the actualization of the goal. And perhaps that's where the shift needs to be, that the reframing of the goal has to be in the everyday moment. It actually means that the reward will last for far longer than the fleeting nature of the end. And I literally wrote that earlier today when I was thinking, you know, so many goals that all of us put forward for 2020, like they just can't exist. Uh, and doesn't mean that you shouldn't create new goals but the because we need you may need those to kind of keep moving forward, but don't be so fixed in them that you lose appreciation for actual where the real benefit is, which is in moving to it, not the end. Yeah, I love that. It is, it is so true, and and you know it's like these these lessons aren't complex ones. They're even ones that we know. We have you know no. people regurgitate these quotes about them all the time, but never really practice it. But I suppose it takes. You know, hard lessons to to really understand. Well, I mean, I look forward to the day when I can pitch something to you and get you on my side of the world. Uh, totally. <laughs> I'd love, I'd love um, to come back that side of the world. Till then, like, just enjoy family bubble because you're right. Like, in your instance, this actually is a blessing. Yeah, no, we're, I'm definitely, definitely enjoying it and, and love it. Um, it's hard to imagine being back back shooting again but um like i said to hannah you know it, it can be frustrating um but it's so important to enjoy it because all of a sudden it's going to be over um and you're going to be looking back at this time saying well we should have really really enjoyed that period and, and and taken advantage of it so really every day trying to make sure that we are taking advantage of it and we are enjoying it and focusing on all the positives around us yeah, can you send my love to her and to the little bub? I definitely expect to see. Uh, I want to see a picture in my WhatsApp letter of um, the baby.